I just wanted to do that just so that Amadi can hear how much louder you are from me than him. Just throwing that out there. All right. Kids are staying with us today. So if you're in here today and you didn't get one of the handouts for worship for kids, if you want one, if you slip your hand up, Lucky and, and Pastor Amadi would love to bring you one. Everybody get what you need? All good? All right. Just checking. If you, if you don't, you need it, we can get it for you. Um, <clears throat> as we get closer to graduation and summer, we're going to see this again and again uh, between people being out on vacation and out sick. Uh, we end up having a hard time staffing children's ministry. And so uh, we value actually having the kids in. We prioritize that. We think that kids learn a lot more from watching us worship and participate in worship. They see dad pray, they see mom take notes, and they learn what it looks like to worship as a family. And so uh, we will likely take a break for the summer uh, and just kind of lean into family worship uh, just out of practicality and, and just the belief that that is probably our stronger way of teaching our kids. Anyway, so they're staying in today. We had a couple cancellations, and so um, that's that. Revelation chapter 14, if you would turn there. That would be great. We've been working our way through the book of Revelation. <clears throat> We've been talking about a book that is given to us with some explicit things, like the language of, blessed are you if you hear and obey this, right from the beginning, right? So the idea is that we're supposed to understand it. It should not be a big mystery. In fact, the very opening verses tell us exactly what we need to understand it. We need to understand the Old Testament imagery, to understand the teachings of Jesus, and then we will understand the visions, right? That those things that John sees will make sense in that context. So the last couple of weeks, we have sat back into Old Testament language to understand what's going on. This week, more the teachings of Jesus. In fact, this week's actually pretty straightforward anyways. But what we'll see is that, that Jesus' teachings inform us about the reason for Revelation 14. So last week, Revelation 13, one of the more famous chapters, right? We see the dragon and, and the two beasts, the two beasts that, that come and, and persecute the church. And we talked about how the first beast represented Rome in John's day, or totalitarian government. And the second beast is false religion, or be, will actually be called the false prophet in the coming chapters. And we talked about how Christianity has oftentimes is suffered or, or is pushed away either by force or deception, right? That sometimes we are pushed away, like forced away or pushed away by force, and then other times by deception. And those that are susceptible to that, those that, that, in, that go through that, that do not follow Jesus, we saw that they took a mark, and, and we talked about that not being a visible or literal mark, but rather an identification of their worship, right? Today, we're going to see the opposite side of that. We're going to see those who are marked by Jesus. And again, we don't see that as being a need for a literal mark, but rather an identification of where our heart is. So coming out of that, I wanted to read this out of Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus makes the case, don't fear human beings who all they can do 
is eliminate this temporary shell of a body. But rather, fear God who has authority over eternity. So today, here's a main idea. Eternal punishment. Jesus teaches about the eternal destiny of humanity. Those who die in him inherit eternal life, and the rest are punished forever. His teaching about hell is to motivate us, that should be us, sorry, motivate us to share the gospel with urgency. Forgive the typo. So Jesus teaches us that there are two things that happen. You can either be in Christ or not in Christ, right? Two categories of people. And that those who are in Christ inherit eternity with him. And those who are outside of Christ, for short-form terms, inherit hell or inherit eternity separate from God. Now, here's what's really important for this today. Jesus speaks more about hell than, I think, any other biblical author or speaker or character or person, if you will. But when he does so, it is almost exclusively to his disciples. And that's important for us. What that tells us, what that teaches us, is that's a teaching for the church, right? That's not something we stand on the corner and yell at people and tell them they're going to hell. Well, we laugh, but how many times have we seen it? Okay. We were in Los Al when we started Generations. We spent a few years there, three, three and a half years in Los Al. And there was commonly a group of people. We see them at the beach. We saw them in Los Al. Those big, bright, black and yellow banners about people going, they lead with. Do you know if you died today, you'd go to hell, right? Literally when, this is about 20 years ago, we're getting ready to plant a church in Huntington Beach. I was walking in downtown Huntington Beach with a friend of mine. We were walking and praying about planting a church there. I literally have a Christian t-shirt on, which does not make me a Christian, but just the same, right? It for sure, by some street cred, I hope, carrying a Bible. Now again, I could be an atheist, but at that point, I think you should give me the benefit of the doubt. And we're walking and we're praying, and this guy standing out in front of BJ's, you know, those little like, kind of bricks around the trees out in the planters in front of BJ's, you guys all have the image? He's standing up on top of that, and he turns and he sees me and says, did you know that if you died tonight, you'd go to hell? But that's when I I just laughed at him, because that was better than choking the snot out of him, right? So I mean, like, that was a better response. It was far more pastoral. Consider the source, right? So I think of Romans 2 that says, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to to lead a man towards repentance? That God's love won me over, not a fear of hell. Not a fear of death, not a fear of hell. Now, that may not be true for everyone, not a ubiquitous truth, but it is relatively true that the love of God is what compels us, right? Not a fear of hell. Those who many, who may be going to hell don't even believe in hell. And so it's the love of God that we lead with. But the teaching on hell is imperative for the church. I'm going to see that today. So Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1, lots of introductions. Sorry, I ran a little long there. Verse 1 says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. So we're moving. Revelation 13 was a view on earth, right? Those who were being persecuted either by force or deception on earth, right? Those are the two beasts empowered by the dragon, which we know is Satan. 
It's a mockery or a parody of the Holy Trinity. It's the unholy Trinity, for lack of better terms, right? That are imposing or trying to impose their will on earth. And so we go from this view on earth to, and I looked and behold, Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is an Old Testament reference, often for the coming kingdom, right? There was a literal Zion, and, and there was a literal place, but that's typically not what the, the prophets wrote about. They use Mount Zion as like the final kingdom. And that's what's happening here. We're moving from the, what we've called lower story and upper story. The lower story is what you and I experience here on earth. That's what we see with the persecution of the two beasts, the, the force and deception here on earth. And now we're getting up to the upper story. And it's the same story, but it's from God's perspective right? There's our perspective here. Now, the same things are all true, but when we look from our perspective, we see one thing or we experience one thing, but from God's perspective, we see something different. And often we just get that kind of eternal divine overview. And oftentimes I would say even God's purposes. When we move back and forth, especially in Revelation, We get to see the same story from a different perspective. And we've talked about this. This is called discursive learning. It's not not linear. It's not chronological. You'll see something, you'll back up, and you'll see it again from a different perspective. Sometimes from the lower story, sometimes from the upper story. Same thing is true, but we've already seen in Revelation, we've already seen the end of the world take place twice, right? So this is not a chronological book. Right? It's a book of, it's just, again, it's called discursive learning. It goes over and over from different perspectives, from different vantage points. So, verse 1 says this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. So, Mount Zion, final kingdom. I saw a Lamb, Jesus, that's the most common thing Jesus has been called so far. There's a few others, we'll see another one today, the Son of Man, super common. But we know who it is, right? We remember that throne room scene, Revelation 4, and then Revelation 5 shows God sitting on the throne holding a scroll, kind of representing redemptive history. Who is worthy to open the scroll, they're asking, and no one is worthy. And John, our author, actually breaks down his cries. He just weeps like no one is worthy to rescue a sinful humanity And then there, standing beside the throne, is a lamb looking as if he had been slain. Jesus, who had died but is alive. Right? We see this, and so this lamb remains a fixture in Revelation. So we know what Mount Zion means. That's clear Old Testament language about the coming kingdom. We know who the lamb is, super simple. We talked about the 144,000 before, and there's this I heard and I saw language all throughout Revelation. Sometimes we'll hear one thing and we'll see another. And what that will do is give us, again, two views, two facets of the same thing. And so we've been using the 144,000 as the church throughout history, right? And it, it is a representation of believers. Now, some see this as a future thing. Some insert Israel, and, and that's a little blurry when you look back at the tribes, but the tribes are written in a unique way. It doesn't really matter who you put in here. It's believers, right? And we could go either way. I will make an argument that it's just the church. It's a representation of the church. Again, we've been using Jewish language all along 
to show Christ and his people. Mount Zion, Jewish language for the coming kingdom, right? The lamb, Passover, the lamb who was slain, Old Testament language, right? And again, none of these things are inherently Israel. They're God's language, right? Whoever God's people are, they're the language that God has used. And so the 144,000 doesn't need to be that. They don't need to be a particular ethnicity, and I honestly don't care if you think they are. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter for our story today. They're Christ people. I'm going to short form that. That's the church. I would say that includes everyone from the ascension to the return, all who believe. Like no one, no matter who they think it is, actually thinks it's 144,000 people. Unless you're a Jehovah's Witness, that number's not literal. We good? Not Jehovah's Witnesses? Good. Okay, all right, so here we go. And what we have is 144,000 with Christ's name written on them, it says. And so again, it says Christ, who had his name, that's the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, clearly I am pro-tattoo. Now, you don't have to be, and that's okay. That ship sailed long before I came to Jesus. So, right? Most of the things you can see cover up things you shouldn't have seen, all right? Or I shouldn't have done is probably a better way to say that, right? And so, no, I don't think this is a literal mark on the foreheads of believers. Just like last week, we said that the, the mark on the head or the hand is not a literal mark, right? It's, it shows where our worship is, right? The imagery of the sealed or those written with God's name written on them is just to tell us who they, who they have their allegiance to. You with me? Right? Right, trained in martial arts. You know martial arts studio. You, you, will, you will wear a t-shirt identifying the school you're with. If you train, if you train in a gi, you'll get your, your, the gi that represents the school you train in. Lots of guys roll jujitsu, do different things, right? It's identity. It's identifying with the community you're part of. There's names, there's things, but it's not necessarily this written mark or, you know, a microchip implanted or all the other things social media freaks out about, okay? We're just identifying who these people are and who they belong to. So if you belong to false worship or worship of government institution, you belong to the beast. That's what it just said. And what did we say last time? If you worship the beast, you worship who? Okay. So either we worship Satan, we worship Jesus. We're identified that way. That's what it's talking about. Verse 2 says this. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and the four living creatures before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So again, we have a look and saw, right? I saw the lamb on Mount Zion and I saw with him the 144,000. Now we hear... And the first thing we hear is this description of what he hears, like a voice from heaven, like the more of many waters, like the, the sound of thunder. But then we're told whose voice or whose sound that is. And that is the church worshiping. That's the 144,000 singing a new song, a song that no one could learn but them. And so we hear what they're doing. We're given descriptions like the beauty of the sound of harps playing together, right? Now, we don't have a lot of harpists running around today that I know of. I mean, they exist, right? I don't personally know someone plays harp off the top of my head, but they're beautiful. They may not be common, but they're beautiful, 
right? I think of like when we have the opportunity to have handbells out here. Uh, I know handbells is playing at a different church today. And, I, and it's just not common all the time. I think, I think Valley is probably one of the few schools that still does it. I don't, I don't know if there's a lot of that going on, but it's beautiful, right? It's just, we have an image. If you've heard it, you know, right? If you hear that and you appreciate that, and that may not be what you listen to in the car, that may not be in your emergency kit of go-to songs, but we get the idea, right? Same thing with harps, right? So John sees Jesus and the church and the voices of they, they are worshiping or singing, right? It's an image-driven explanation of the worship that's going on. It's also, I looked and I saw, right? I saw these identity of these people, and then I heard, and we get another perspective of the same people, these people who worship God. It makes sense? See, we, we see one thing, we hear another, and they put together to make one thing. This is all about the 144,000 who are worshiping, right? Who are singing a new song, and, and no one can learn that song, no one can sing that song, no one could participate in that worship if they're not Christ's. And so again, we have two categories of people, or at least we have a category and anyone who's not in that category. Verse 4, it is these, so the 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. So I want you to Contrast that, if you were here last week, with the descriptions of those and the blasphemies from last week, right? How that was explained. If not, you can listen to that. It's on YouTube. You can go back and read it. Here what we have is the redeemed of Christ described, right? Right there, sandwiched in the middle of three descriptions is the redeemed of Christ. And so this is what we learn about the redeemed of Christ. It is these who have not defiled themselves... It is these who follow the Lamb, and in their mouth was no lie found. Now, the first one, probably the others are pretty simple. The first one can be confusing. I'm going to go back and read it from verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Okay. First of all, God created marriage. God created sex. God created sexuality. Now, clearly, God governs that and says this is what is appropriate sexual behavior and sexual ethic according to biblical standards, according to God who created it, that it's one man, one woman consensually inside the boundaries of marriage for a lifetime, right? And then everything else, no matter what the everything else is, everything else is sexual sin, right? Simple. But that doesn't mean that sex itself is bad. It doesn't mean that non-marriage is good. And we get, we get this confused because at one point, Paul writes to people and says, listen, I wish that you were as I am. In other words, unmarried. He's likely a widower, but that's a story for another day. But at that moment, he's not married. His comment is, I wish that you were like me, unhindered so you could do the ministry, right, that you are called to do. What he's not doing is going backwards and saying what God created in marriage is less than singlehood. Make sense? See, God created humanity. He created the world. He created the sun and the moon and the stars, the light, the day, the night, the animals, the fish, the sea, the oceans, the land, the trees, the fruit, all of it. And every time he creates, he says, that is good. That is good. That is good. And then he creates the man, and he says, that is very good. And he breathes. He literally exhales life into him. 
And then the first not good comes when he says it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. I'll make the woman, right? His partner in life. And then he, God, presides over the first marriage in the garden. And he gives us a template for life later. He says it is right that a man should leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, they should become one flesh, right? And that they should go now, multiply, fill the earth, teach their children about their faith, etc. right? Go. And so it is good that God created marriage. The design is that we're created for relationship. And so this is not about that. Again, all of Revelation, again, 90-something percent of it is written the way it's written to cause you to feel as much as you think. Make sense? You should feel something about that. You should understand this. And it's like the book of Hosea, where the prophet Hosea is told to go marry a woman named Gomer. God says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a woman named Gomer who is going to be unfaithful to you and she'd have children with other men. Side note, young people, if you have a daughter, don't name her Gomer. It's a bad beginning. You're doomed to be the story for a prophet. Okay, I'm just throwing that out there. All right? Let's go with something better. So God uses this with Hosea the prophet. He tells him to go do it. She does. She, uh, and I'll clean the language out. She just sleeps around, right? God's pretty clear in that passage what she does. And then God tells Hosea to go buy her back out of her slavery, out of her debt, out of her sin. And he does, and it's an image. It's a teaching of our unfaithfulness to God lived out so that we can see what it's like. So this sexual infidelity, or on the opposite side, this fidelity to, is supposed to remind us of our faithfulness to God, right? It's not abstinence. It's an image to teach us about our faithfulness to God and what it means to be the redeemed of Christ. The second one is following Jesus wherever he goes. And so if the first image is about us not doing what we ought not do, then the second one is about following Jesus and doing what we ought to do. Now, we didn't plan this. Clearly, the Holy Spirit's smarter than I am. But that prayer that Alex read earlier had that language. Right? Forgive what we have, that we ought not have done, and the things that we ought to do that don't. Right? And I, I was thinking, and I was praying, and I think, you know, over the last week or whatever it's been, and, and I think, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of things I did that I should not have done. But I feel like there's a mountain of things that I should have done and have not done. And, and I, I've even shared with some of you, like, I prioritize the gospel here more than I do in my unsaved family, right? And, and that's, God convicted me of that just before Easter. I, I've said that publicly now a couple times. And left myself a post-it note at home. I came out, I got to call my mom, right? Like, I've got to, I shouldn't have to remind myself like that. Like, it's the things that I ought to have already done that I feel like I'm falling short. And so that prayer resonated with me. So there's the, don't do the wrong things, be pure in that way. But there's also do the right things. Follow Jesus where Jesus is calling you to go. And the third thing is no lies found. That's being a truthful witness for Christ. One of the things we talked about more the beginning of the year is belonging to a local body, right? Being a part, a member of a local church, right? 
And as we've looked at that, and, and just as we've said, you know, summer we're going to lean into that, and, and what does it mean to belong? What does it mean to be a member of one another? How does that, what does that mean? And, and part of the things that's beautiful about that is our witness to the world around us, right? That who are the, what, is, what does generations look like? What looks like its people, right? And then its people are its witness about Jesus to the community that we live in. Right? And, and this idea of no lies found in their mouth isn't about just simple honesty and telling the truth. It's about being a faithful witness for Christ in the world. And so I'm going to put this on the screen, the faithful church from these two verses. John gives us three attributes of the redeemed of Christ. They are obedient to avoid sin, faithful to disciple others, and they are truthful witnesses for the gospel. Right? We avoid the wrong, we do the things that Jesus calls us to, make disciples, share faith, love one another, pray with one another, whatever it might be to do, and then we represent Christ well. I mean, it's a really basic foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but it's really good to have that kind of trifold approach to it. Okay, sometimes we get caught up in things we shouldn't do. Okay, that can change. Sometimes we're doing better over here, but we're not doing the things we ought to do. Okay, we can, we can work on that. And then overall, we have to be a witness individually and collectively, a good witness for Jesus. Verse 6, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Now again, we're in this upper story. Right? We see the, the redeemed of Christ with Christ. And that doesn't mean they're necessarily with Jesus and not on earth. It's a different view. It could be those who have died and gone to be with Jesus, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I don't think that's what it's saying, but it can be. That's okay too. Right? But there's this, this angel, and we, we know that angels, the word angel, the Greek word angelos, literally means messenger. Like if you send a messenger, you send an angelos, Right? angel, the spiritual being, are created beings, right, that are created by God, functionally, a lot of the time, they become messengers. Right before Christmas, we always tell those stories, right, and an uh, angel goes and tells Mary, an angel goes and speaks to Joseph, that kind of thing, it's a messenger, right, that's common. Now this, again, doesn't have to be literal, this is about the gospel, this is about the message of the gospel going out, right, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, here's why I would say that's more about the message than the messenger, right? Is it is our responsibility to be the messenger, right? That is the church's witness. We just heard that, that we live right on both sides of that. We don't do what we shouldn't do. We do what we ought to do, and that we are a faithful witness. And so we hear the eternal gospel of this angel but it is not an angelic being that is responsible for evangelizing the world. Are you with me? The job of the church is to be a witness for Christ. And that doesn't just mean, as the old saying goes, that you, you know, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. That's a terrible quote. It's attributed to Augustine, who never said it. Yes, your life should not undermine your gospel. But gospel is good news. It's to be proclaimed, right? It's to be shared with others. Right? And who's going to share it if we don't share it? And this is not absolving us of our responsibility to take the good news of Christ and share it with others because we think an angel is going to do it. And so I just want you to hear this is about the gospel going out, not taking us out of the equation. Verse 7. 
And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So we see is this gospel going out also gives way to judgment. Verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. Now Babylon, all throughout Scripture, goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It's used over and over prophetically or as an image of a sinful carnal world, right? A world that it lives in its flesh, lives in its desires, not living to follow God, right? The Rolling Stones have an album called Babylon. That should say it all, right? Rolling Stones is a band. An album is like a CD that's really big. Sorry. <laughs> CD is what we had before we had iPhones. Sorry. I, I gotta, should know the audience. All right. So this is an idea of a sinful, carnal world, right? A world that follows its desires and its flesh and does not follow God. That's the idea here. And this other angel proclaims, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, right? This sinful, carnal world is coming to an end. The destruction of this brokenness that we live in is going to cease, and that's what this angel is proclaiming. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead or his hand, right? So back to Revelation 13, what we were talking about last week. We talk about those who take that mark. And again, I want to reiterate, it's not about a visible mark. It's about a posture of the heart. It's about identity. So I'm going to put this on the screen. Sealed by God or or marked by the beast, our lives reflect what we truly worship. Revelation uses marks and seals, or even written like we saw earlier, as images describing how people's true affections based on their faith. I have lots of titles today, sorry. Actions follow belief, and belief is rooted in in our truest worship, right? Actions follow belief. We say this a lot. We don't have behavior problems. We have belief problems, right? If you change what you believe, what will happen is your actions will change. And so worship flows out of belief. It's not just an academic or a mental assent to the fact that something is true. Like I had believed for many years, long before I was a a follower of Jesus, that the Easter story was true. That Jesus had lived, he had died, and resurrected. I I felt like that was a point in history that was true. I may have at some point said I was a Christian, but I wasn't a follower of Jesus. My dog tags actually say no religious preference, but I believed that that story was true. So it's not like I mentally ascend to the idea that Jesus lived and died and rose again, because you can have that and not be a follower of Jesus. I would make the claim that Satan has that belief. And clearly, is the adversary not a follower? And so it's about believing in your... See, if you truly, if you spend time with that, it will change your life. If you believe that someone created you, designed you, made you, and when you have failed, that God, that, that, that being that made you, still pursues you and loves you, has done something to reconcile the relationship, well, that will transform you. And if we understand the gospel, the victorious nature of a sinful life, the, the substitutionary nature of the death on the cross, and the victorious overcoming new life of the resurrection, 
Well, that, that's transforming, right? And so it's this kind of snapshot of you're either this or you're this. And if you're doing this, your life is saying this, right? Then it doesn't really matter which t-shirt you wear. It matters what you do. And I'm not making this a you earn or a moralism or a works-based. It's, it's what you believe, who you worship will show as clearly as a mark on a head or a hand. And so this image-driven explanation is we will see the fruits of who we trust in and what we trust in and what we do. And so the idea is that there are clear categories, that there are those who are in Christ, and that should be evident and there are those who are not, and that is likely evident. So let's restart verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. So now we've seen heaven and hell. Now, again, I want to ask, now, who is the recipient, the reader of the book of Revelation? The seven churches, right? Seven churches in Asia Minor, I agree. But John is writing to specific, these seven churches, the real churches, they exist in real space and time, right? 1,900 years ago when this was written, they were gathering like this on the Lord's Day together to be the church, right? Real churches, now, they didn't have a sign out front because they were being persecuted. They probably didn't have air conditioning. They were a church. They gathered. They met on the Lord's Day to worship Jesus. And he's writing to them. He's writing to them, not to the world. We get to read it. He wasn't even writing to us. And it's been preserved for us. God had intentions for us. But he's writing to the church. And this is important. Remember what we said about Jesus earlier. Jesus spoke very clearly about hell to his disciples almost always, to the religious leaders a couple times, called them sons of hell. That wasn't a good thing either. So when this is written, it's written to the church. We have to hear this, right? The understanding of eternity, heaven and hell, the understanding of what hell is, that that is an eternal penalty, an eternal punishment, an eternal separation from God. When we hear that, There's two things we need to know. We need to know that that is for us, the church, the believers, those who follow Jesus. And then we also need to hear that that's not supposed to be used as a weapon against non-believing people. And we know that because of who is the recipient here or who was Jesus speaking to. It's consistent throughout Scripture that, that we would understand this. So clear teachings about hell are not intended to scare non believers into faith into conversion, but rather to have true believers of Jesus understand the cost of forever, right? Either calling us to repentance or loving our neighbors into faith. And and so again, we've used the language of who is your one, right? Like who is the one person that if you died today or they died today, apart from you sharing Christ with them, you would have regrets, and I hope you have more than one. But we can all at least identify that one person. Who's, who's your one, right? Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, 
and whoever receives the mark of its name. So, and again, an eternal punishment is brought forward. And so if the gospel is true, if we understand the gospel and, and, and this understanding that there's a God who created you and loves you and designed you and that you have chosen to walk away from that God, that we have, and when I say you, we have all walked away from that God, that we've all chosen to go our own direction, right? And the Bible calls that sin or transgression or different terms, but basically we've told God who created us, hey, listen, I know you say this is best for me, but I know more than you and I'm going that way. Sometimes we're that bold, sometimes we're a little more subtle. Either way, we go our own, our own way and, and, and we disregard God. And what God gives us are those images, like an unfaithful wife, like Gomer was to Hosea, to teach us about our going the wrong direction, that our unfaithfulness to the God who made us. And he gives us these images so that we'll understand the deficit of pain and brokenness that sin creates. And then, like God sends Hosea to rescue Homer and redeem her from the slavery that she had prostituted herself into, God sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us from the slavery of sin. That we were destined to sin and hell and and perpetuating the problem and that even our best efforts just piled sin on top of sin. For those of you men that were at the men's retreat, we talked about in the garden, how the first thing that, that happens after humanity sins and has this kind of moment where internally they're broken, they begin to cover themselves, right? They try and deal with sin on their own terms. They try and fix their sin problem. They can't. And ultimately, the end of Genesis 3, God has to strip them of their efforts, and God has to cover them. And he, he does so by sacrificing an animal to cover them, foreshadowing Christ to come. So if God has gone all this way, if God, has, God himself has put on human flesh... He says, my son, I will send my only son. He gives himself for us. If Jesus entered into human history and put on flesh for us and then endured this life, the highs and lows and and struggles of life, and then went to a cross to be crucified and and suffered a brutal penalty and death, If, if Jesus is going to endure this to reconcile a holy God and a sinful humanity, knowing we could never work our way up to God, knowing God must come down to us, but if God would pay this great a penalty, there must be something he's saving us from. You see, when God told Noah to build an ark, if the flood never came, Noah wasted his time. See, without a flood, the ark is a waste, and without hell, the cross is a waste. Yes, maybe it could, it could give us a different relationship, with, with, but we're not saving us from something. And so Jesus speaks clearly, both in the Gospels, at other times, through his apostles, and in Revelation, about the eternal destiny of those who are never in Christ, giving us the importance and the weight and the value. In John 3, you guys all know earlier, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He didn't send him to condemn the world, right? But to save them. All the way, John 30, 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
We're born into this world in sin and separation. We're born under the wrath of God. Apart from Christ, the wrath remains. And the Bible makes this very clear. And sadly, Christianity does one of two things. They either ignore it, try and explain it away, because it's a struggle to be fair. It's, it's a hard thing to think through. Or they take that, that doctrine of hell and they aim it at those who are outside of Christ as if that will convert them. Verse 12. Here is a call. And so again, I, I'm just going to ask you, so who's your one? Who are the people you know and love that don't know Jesus? It's supposed to motivate us in that area. Yes, it should convict us and turn us from sin and and correct us, but it should do so knowing we're loved by Jesus already and that we want to be a witness to the world. So who's your one? Who are we praying for? Right, You have an opportunity every week when you check in to give us your prayer requests, and we love praying for you when you're sick or when you're this or that or whatever need you are, but let's begin to pray for those people as well. That was powerful before Easter. We had an amazing time praying for people. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Right? There's actually two calls for endurance here. We're called to remain faithful. Right? We're called to remain faithful to Jesus, like we saw back in chapters 4 and 5. And we're called to remain faithful in sharing the gospel, like verse 7. Right? We see that we're to be faithful in how we live and faithful in what we proclaim. Right? That we're not just saved from something, we're also saved to something. We're not just rescued from hell, but we're, we enter into an eternal kingdom. But as we sit here in this in-between, in this now and not yet space, we have a job to do. I've said this a few times in this series, but there is one thing you cannot do that is pleasing to God in heaven that you can do now. Let's evangelize. Share your faith with the lost. There will be no loss to share with but it is pleasing to God today. Here is a call, verse 12, for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here's a note for you. The faithful in Christ. Living a life of faith means far more than avoidance of sin. It also includes being faithful to the mission of Jesus and reaching the lost. Those who have been transformed by Christ share the gospel message with others. That becomes part of the vocation, part of the job description of being a follower of Jesus is that we have the opportunity to do that. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from all their labors for their deeds follow them. Rest from their labors emphasizes the work that we do here. Right? Not work in earning our favor with God. That's already been satisfied by Christ. The gospel is that you who were unlovable have been loved, who are unworthy, have been made worthy. It's not about earning anything. It's not about adding anything to the work of Christ. It's joining him in the mission. It's that we have an opportunity to share the story of how God has impacted us and how he can impact others. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. We get a a glimpse again of Jesus, but note a different view of Jesus. Right? A minute ago, we saw 
Mount Zion and the Lamb, the Lamb looking as if it had been slain that we met early in Revelation. Now we see again one like the Son of Man crowned. Right? We get a view of Jesus. I was at a pastor's conference this last week in the god-awful state of New Mexico. Sorry if anybody's ever from there, but my place was horrible. But uh, the people were great. It was like 85 degrees and raining. It was horrible. I know, first world problems. But I'm just saying, it wasn't fun. Anyhow, so there's this guy who was speaking. His name's Michael Rees. He's uh, the president of a seminary in England. Brilliant man. And he just made this simple, solid point. He was in a passage that was talking about both the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, and it was talking about Jesus himself, kind of like a passage like this. And he says that we, especially Westerners, that we get so distracted or focused maybe on the work of Christ that we end up missing the character of Christ. It was good. You should have been there. But it was really good. Minus the New Mexico part, evidently. But you get the point, right? It was this idea that we can be so engaged in in what Jesus has done for us in the economy, which is amazing. We don't want to lose that. But that we miss Jesus. Sometimes in the gospel, we can so be work or or hand-centered that we miss the face of Jesus. It's, it's like take your marriages and understand that it's about the person, not just about what is done. Yeah, you share the load at home. Maybe you're raising kids together. Or you swap the, you know, the, the chores of life, but maybe you do things for one another. But truly, your love is about the person. And that our faith is about the person of Jesus, not just the work of Jesus. And it was a profound point. And when I, I see this, I think of that. And so here's a note for you. Seeing Christ himself, Revelation reveals Christ enthroned in heaven and empowered to reign eternally. We must fix our eyes on the glory of who Jesus is, not just what he has done. Right? It is what he has done is good. But what we want most is Jesus. What we are to want most is Jesus. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the ground, meaning Jesus. He says, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, again, meaning Jesus, swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. I think of those times when Jesus told his disciples, it's, it's not for you to know the time or the hour of the end. He says the son of man doesn't even know, right? He uses the same title we just saw here but only God in heaven. And so God sends who? A messenger, right? To tell him, now is the time. And again, do I think God literally needs to tell an angel to get the message across? Probably not, but you get the idea. Now is the time. And so Jesus swings his sickle and reaps the earth. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire. Remember, we met that angel back in 7 and 5. And he called a loud voice into one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so we have these two harvests, if you will. We have Jesus who harvests the first harvest. And then we have the angel who harvests the second. And I don't know if this is true, but as I was reading through this over the last couple of weeks, I... Maybe this is that, where we get that Grim Reaper image, right? Like we have the sickle and, and kind of death is taking place. I don't know if that's true, but for sure that's what's going on with the second angel. 
There is a second harvest. So Jesus is taking his own to be with him, and the rest are being harvested to judgment. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So Jesus first takes those who are his own, takes them into the city, into the kingdom. Right? Those are languages that were given all throughout Scripture. An eternal kingdom, an eternal city, a new Jerusalem, a new Mount Zion. Right? That Jesus takes those who are his with him, and then a second harvest comes, and they are taken out of the city to face and endure the wrath of God. So the second reaper comes and harvests those non-believers. And so we have this grim image, if you will, that starts out so beautiful as we see Jesus and the 144,000 with him. And we hear the songs of worship and we're told how beautiful they are. We're talking about the gospel going out across the world. And then it slowly descends into the rest of this story. Because it is true that there will be those who will sing, those who will enjoy, those who will be in the presence of God. I pray you and I will all be there together. Right? That in Christ, I know that I'm secure in Him and that you can be secure in Him. And that He desires to seal you, to mark you, to make you His. And that there's nothing you can do to earn that. But what we do is we respond to that. And so, yeah, we respond by not doing the things He's called us not to do. And we respond by doing the things He has called us to. And we, and, and we join together so that we are a collective, honest, truthful, good witness of the gospel as long as we are here. But then we're reminded, and we'll put this verse up, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That we are told repeatedly that one day the end will be. And that those who are in Christ will go with Jesus, and that those who aren't in this chapter undergo the wrath of God. And that this is given as a message to the church, not as an evangelism message. Right, a believer's teaching, a member for those who are in Christ, because it should push us out towards those whom we love. See, in Romans 10, it says this How then will they call on him with whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And that language of preaching there is not like what I'm doing, but like speaking, like going out and, and actually verbally doing it. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will the world hear? How will your one hear? Or your ten, or what have you got? How will they hear without you? See, God has placed them on your heart for a reason. Because you are the one to go and reach them. So yes, we align our lives with Jesus. We, we do it because Jesus deserves it. Because Jesus is right because life is better when we do that anyways. But we do it because we want to be a witness to the world. And that when we speak of our faith, we don't want our life to undermine that message. 
But our lives should never be an excuse to not do what we've been called to do. To take that gospel out. And so I put that before you today as we get a graphic description of an eternity of God's wrath. May it move us to being a people with the greatest message ever given. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and gave your life for us. You sat down on earth from your throne in heaven. You surrendered the glory of divinity and the beauty of your throne to come and be the lamb who was slain. You did so out of love for us, out of love for your church throughout the ages, as well as your love for those who are yet to come to faith. And we believe that there are a designated group of people out there that have yet to come to faith that you are waiting on patiently for all of the elect to come to faith. And when that day comes, the end is on its heels. And so we're reminded that we, the redeemed, as it is said in verse 4, are to live faithfully, to live obediently, and to live collectively as a witness for you so that all those whom we know and love, more importantly, all those whom you love, might come to faith. And that they would come to faith through us. That they would see our lives and hear our words and our testimony of your goodness and the transformation that we have found in you and that they will desire to know you as well. Help us as a church to be that witness. Help us to prioritize those whom you've placed on our heart. Just as once we were placed on the hearts of others because we were on your heart. And so Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Generations, as we do...